1: Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor from Radio Times and welcome to this very special Christmas episode of View From My Sofa. Each week over the festive period, we'll be sitting down with the stars of TV to talk all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch? And who do they watch with? On this Christmas bonus episode of View From My Sofa, I'm joined by a self-confessed Christmas Scrooge, Miriam Margulies. Known for speaking her own mind as much as her long and celebrated acting career, Miriam talks to me about loathing Christmas, never reading a Harry Potter book, despite playing the head of Hufflepuff in the film franchise, and why she refuses to slow down. Miriam Margulies, welcome to View From My Sofa. How lovely of you to invite me. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure getting you because I've been asking and asking because you've had lots of really good TV coming out. So I'm very excited that this is our Christmas special. Now, Miriam, you are a self-confessed Christmas Scrooge. So what does the view from your sofa look like in the festive period?
0: Uh, I think it would be empty because I would probably be lying in bed and not... <laughs> not downstairs, I would be propped up against the bedhead, uh reading
1: or listening to radio four. Do you have a Christmas tree? Do you decorate your house with tinsel or is that an absolute no-go? Absolutely not. I do not have any form of decorations, Christmas cards or a Christmas tree, and I never have. What does Christmas Day usually look like for you? It looks
0: uh, like uh, a solitary day with my partner, Heather. Uh, Occasional raidings of the fridge to make cheese and tomato and onion sandwiches. Otherwise, turning on the television and maybe making overseas calls to loved friends far
1: away. That surprises me. So you don't have a big roast on Christmas dinner? No, I used to. I used to be in full thrall to the,
0: to the god of Christmas, who is not my god, incidentally. But mm. I don't see the need to do anything. It's not my festival. I'm not interested in it. I find it very exhausting.
1: And it's an opportunity to just chill out and be quiet. You say you turned on the telly. So, what telly and films do you watch over the Christmas period?
0: Oh, I think it would probably be all the uh, the films on the BAFTA and the Academy portal, not so uh, streamed from uh, their websites.
1: In your Channel 4 programme, which is coming out, Miriam's Dickensian Christmas, you channel your love of Dickens and investigate the festive traditions that he introduced through A Christmas Carol. So you explore the advent of turkey dinners, Christmas cards, family theatrics and quirky parlour games. What did you learn?
0: Well, I learned I'm very glad I didn't have to go through all that. (laughs) It confirmed me in my uh, Scrooge-like nature. But it also showed me the joy that you get from being with people over Christmas because we had an amazing Christmas party cooked by a charity who gets food from throwaway places that would otherwise be put in bins and crushed underfoot. And we got all the food for free. And this wonderful chap,
1: Leon. He cooked it all, and with your love of Dickens, was A Christmas Carol a, a particularly important novel for you? It, it's not to
0: do with Christmas that I love Christmas Carol. It's it's because of Dickens that I love Christmas Carol. It's a great piece of work. It's only short. It's not a long, long book like many of his books are that put people off. It's a short book in what he calls five staves. He wrote it as if it was a, a piece of music, but it's a thrilling story, and I love it. And one of the pleasures of this programme is that I get to hear a little bit of it done by Dickens' great-great-great-grandson, Gerald Dickens, and that for me is a lovely thrill because Dickens is meant to be listened to, to be read aloud to, not just to uh, to read him.
1: Yeah. Where did you visit or were there any particular places that you visited that you felt a real connection with or that you thought, oh, I, I can really see through his eyes what he was writing at that time?
0: I visited Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, which he collected money for and raised money for and was a great supporter of. And there in the church, actually, was was where I spent more time than in the wards, I felt what Dickens felt when he was able to do good because he was a complicated bloke. He was kind and he was horrible, both at the same time. But he did love kids. He loved children. He felt for them. And I think that came from his own rather unhappy and deprived childhood. So he never he never lost the feeling of being a child, of being an unwanted child. So there, in that very sweet surroundings, I felt his compassionate spirit. And um, when I when I went to the the Pollock Theatre, uh, there's a, a marvelous place in in one of the old parts of Fitzrovia in in London, where they have a, a Pollock Theatre. It's a pop up. Um, theatre that you can give give people as as presents. I had them when I was little, and you see how he was able to create a, a theatrical environment for children on the kitchen table. It's a model theatre with uh, slide in characters and. It was great fun going there. I don't really like children. I don't get on with children. But it was very exciting to hear how they enjoyed it so much. And I felt closer to Dickens then, than probably for many years, because he he loved children. He absolutely loved them.
1: Did making that film change your perception of Christmas? Did you feel you had the Scrooge makeover?
0: I don't know that I changed my perception of Christmas, but I realised that there was a lot more good in Christmas than I had thought. I, I believed that I was submerged in the commercialism of it. And that made me cross and disappointed. I must say, when I went to Fortnum and Mason's, that was a bit of an eye opener when I saw how how a box of crackers can cost a thousand pounds. That made me sit up and uh, rather (laughs) purse my lips. But I think that Christmas, if people accept it in the spirit, which I think Jesus meant it to be accepted, then it's a wonderful thing. But
1: unfortunately, it's been clouded by commercialism. And you have to admit that. I know because I read back through the, you did a Radio Times interview a few Christmases ago for a similar slot to what we're doing now. And in it, you say, you know, you're not, you're not a religious person. And as you said in in this uh, podcast, that, This isn't your religion or your um, celebration. And you've spoken about the hypocrisy around Christmas and how you feel it's becoming increasingly over-commercialised and too expensive. But then you also said that there's a really nice message of kindness and how, you know, the things that we confront at Christmas, poverty and other social issues like that, it's a nice reminder that we can do good all year round, but perhaps it only really comes out at Christmas.
0: Yes, I think that's a a fair summing up. I want everybody to have a wonderful time at Christmas. I think it's terrific for families. That's what it's for. It's for people who are enjoying themselves in a group with friends. But there's so much pressure on people, sometimes Mm. inviting people they don't really want to be with. But they only see at Christmas time, and and when they see them, they realise why they only see them at Christmas time. <laughs> so, I think I think it's it, it's a it's laden. It's got too much too much pressure on it, and mm. really, we need relaxation at, at that time. So, I don't think I'm going to change my celebrations at Christmas, but I hope that. The programme will interest and entertain so that people can enjoy it. Because life is, is to be enjoyed. Life is to be delighted by. And he was somebody, more than most, who enjoyed social life and food and drink. And we're following in his footsteps a little bit,
1: not totally, perhaps, Now, this seems a a strange question to move on from. But after a conversation on capitalism and at the risk of indulging in the overindulgence of Christmas, what are the best and worst Christmas presents you've ever received?
0: Well, the worst Christmas presents for me are always candles. If people give me candles, I want to throw them back at them in their face. I never want to see another candle again. I can't bear them, whether they're smelly or not smelly, whether they're short, tall, wherever they come from, whether they're decorated, don't give me a candle for Christmas. That's all I will say on that. The nicest Christmas present, oh gosh, well I've had so many. I mean, yeah, they're usually books, books that I've really wanted. Uh, That's the nicest.
1: I want to take it back to your childhood now. So you grew up in Oxfordshire and lived with your parents who you were very close with. What was Christmas like for you growing up? It was uh, a generous time
0: when it was great fun at school and we did give each other Christmas cards. But as soon as I came home, we had to pretend that Christmas didn't exist. The only concession was that we always gave christmas lunch to people who would otherwise have been on their own because Mummy was a very compassionate generous creature uh, much more so than my father and she liked to entertain so we usually had a a few uh, miserable souls around for christmas
1: and what was your first tv memory from childhood and this doesn't have to be christmas Oh, related. I
0: think it would be the coronation of Her Majesty the Queen. That's what oh. I remember, because we didn't have a television when I was little. But when, uh, in 1953, the coronation, June the 2nd, uh, one of my father's patients had a coronation gathering and various friends, Mrs. Harwood, I remember her name was, uh, used to, in, in, in well, she did invite... Um, people around to watch it was only a little screen it wasn't one of these great big televisions like they are now and of course it it was black and white but um i remember we went you know first thing in the morning as soon as the coronation service started and we stayed till quite late that night and that was fascinating and a memory
1: to be cherished i've never forgotten it did you ever have a TV as a family?
0: Yes, when I, when we, um, I think it would have been in the 60s. I went up to Cambridge in 1960 and then my parents decided they would have a television because it was no longer a danger to me and my
1: education. Oh, bless. And so you, you went on to study English at Cambridge. What were you like as a young adult
0: Well, I was much the same as I am now, only I could run and jump and dance and make a noise. But now I'm an old lady, so I can't do very much. I do what I can. Uh, But I was very much the same. Naughty, uh, curious, interested in people, would talk to strangers at the drop of a hat, nosy, peering over the fence, wanting to know what people were doing. And... uh, I didn't have a bicycle until I went to Cambridge, always wanted to have a bicycle. So I used to walk alongside my my friends who wheeled their bikes. We used to walk to and from school and and they would very kindly wheel their bikes until I got home. And then they would get on their bike and go off to their homes.
1: How did you find Cambridge? And was it... At what point did you think that you wanted to get into acting? Was that kind of a dream that you had as a young child? Was it perhaps when you were part of the Footlights? I don't think I thought
0: about acting as a career until I actually got to university. Um, I did plays, I I did school plays and they were fun and I enjoyed them and I was good at it. And I did um, the public speaking competition and I always won it. So I was very much uh, an extrovert. But um, when I got to Cambridge, then I realized that there were societies that you could join where you could be with other people who were just as good as you were. And that was daunting and exciting. And I joined all the clubs I could and, and I did as many productions as I could. And when I left Cambridge, I was one of the best actresses at the university. So how did
1: you get into acting
0: when you left? I didn't manage to get into acting for about two years after I left university. And I think it was a wasted two years. I sold encyclopedias from door to door and I I did what they call market research, which means that you ask people... Marketing questions. People you stop in the street, who don't want to be stopped in the street and want to go somewhere else. But uh, I would always make them listen to what I had to say. Sometimes it was door to door sales, very much like the selling. But um, it, it was uh, it was a curious limbo at time of my life. And then I wrote to a radio producer who had seen me on um, in the Footlights and I wrote to him for an audition on the BBC Drama Repertory Company and I got in that way after an audition.
1: And then you went on to do quite a lot of theatre.
0: Yes, I, I joined uh, the Repertory Company in Leicester. And then I joined the repertory company in Edinburgh at the Traverse Theatre. And then I came down to London to try my luck. And I didn't really do very well for a very long time. But eventually, I suppose I cracked it in some ways. I'm, I've never, I never f- felt that I had the career I'd hoped for, but I did all right.
1: I think some would argue you've done more than all right. You are recognised as one of the greatest character actresses of our time. You've received a BAFTA. Which roles have left the biggest mark on you, do you think, over the course of your career?
0: I loved being the nurse in Romeo and Juliet for Baz Luhrmann. Mm -hmm. That's my favourite film. Really, I'm I'm so happy to hear that. I, I think it's a very fine film.
1: It's beautiful.
0: In Australia... I did a, a play called I'll Eat You Last, which was about an American agent, a, a real person who lived called Sue Mengers. And the only other person who's ever played that part is uh, Beck Midler. So <laughs> I, I think that gives you an idea of the bravura kind of role that it was. But I, I did that rather well. And when I was at... Cambridge uh, at university I played Mary Tyrone in Long Day's Journey into Night and I would love to do that again before I die Do you have a preference
1: between stage and screen
0: Yes I prefer the theater I know what I'm doing more in the theater in 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 the cinema or, or when you're you're at the beck and call of the director it's his choice what you do he decides what shots are shown. So you can act your socks off, but if it's not on camera, there's no point at all. So I prefer to have more power, and the power is in the theatre.
1: I listened to your audiobook. That was one of the first books that I read this year, so I, I listened to your autobiography, and I really enjoyed it. And the strange thing about audiobooks is that you feel like you know the person, and especially when it's you reading it creates that very strange relationship and i i want to go back to when you were kind of living in london trying to make it especially if you're an incredibly academic person or you or you do well academically and and you are raised in an environment in, in the education system that says if you get good grades, you'll go to a good university and you'll do well and you tick all these boxes. And then after that, you're thrown into the world. And I guess especially with acting, there's never that security. You know, even if you do really well, say you land a dream role or a massive film, there's, there's never any security that you're going to keep getting work. So what was that like in the early days? How did you motivate yourself to, to carry on? Was it a love of it? Or, yeah, talk to me about that journey.
0: It wasn't easy when I was becoming who I am, when I was becoming the actress that I am. It was a struggle. And very often I would say to my mother, I don't think it's going to work, you know, I think I should pack this in. And she would say, no, she was very emphatic. She said, don't be ridiculous. You're, brilliant you're good you're going to be discovered don't don't be a coward just keep going and so i did so i know very well what disappointment rejection and hopelessness is like i'm very familiar with it i i think what um what kept me going was a real love of theatre. So I would go to the theatre a lot, see my friends who were working, watch what they were doing, read plays, feel connected to to the industry. And I think that kept my longings alive. And I was also prepared to go and do things for nothing uh, at the Enra Festival or small theatres in London. You know, sometimes you got offered something and you thought, well, I'm not doing anything. Why not? So I think you just have to keep your flame burning as best you can. Were your parents always supportive of your dream to become an actress? My mother was always supportive. My father uh, was definitely not. He found the whole thing completely terrifying. And he would say things like, uh, "What, what were your earnings? last year what what did you what did you take home and when I would tell him he'd go oh dear yes I see but then when I started to make it a bit and he'd say what what were your earnings Miriam last year and I would tell him he'd go oh really and he would (laughs) he would be more cheerful as a result
1: for him it was about money I want to talk to you about uh, Baslam's Romeo and Juliet What was that experience like working with Baz and and also um, Claire Danes as as a young emerging actress and also, obviously, Leonardo DiCaprio?
0: Well, at the time, I thought it was completely nuts. I didn't have the feeling, which I have now, that it's a a very great interpretation of a really sophisticated play. Mm. Um, But I now feel that it's... A major achievement, and I really admire Baz for his commitment to it. He was utterly committed warner brothers who who were the studio financing it were not happy at all because the budget kept going up and up, and he had such extraordinary ideas and then one of the uh, most important set designs which was the mirror the uh, not the mirror sorry uh, which was the, the tank the water tank uh, that that the two lovers glimpsed themselves through the most extraordinary vision well it shattered and the whole tank broke collapsed and cascaded water everywhere and Baz said, well, we have to do it again. And Warner Brothers came down. I mean, all the big cheeses from Hollywood flew into Mexico City, where we were recording. And he said, um, uh, I, you know, I want, to do it, I want to do it again. And they said, no, no, we can't afford that. And he said, well, if you don't do it, I'm walking. And he would have done it. He was utterly committed to his vision. So they built
1: the tank again goodness what was it like being in la you know does it does it have a very different feel to working in in england
0: oh yes it's completely different it's it's awfully silly i mean la is a nonsense place i i don't like it and i don't like being there i was very lucky because i was paid to live live there i was paid a ridiculous amount of money just to to be there while they were working out what to do with me and it was wonderful because I had a you know a very luxurious apartment in Santa Monica facing the ocean I had a car I had friends you know it was a a silly life but it's not a real life it's not it's not reality and everybody is terrified of failure I don't think it's a healthy environment at all. But it's where you make money. It's the centre of the entertainment industry. And for uh, about 16 years, I had a place there and worked there and had friends there. But it's not really for me.
1: Mm. And you also confessed in your book that although you're known to so many children around the world as Professor Sprout, you've never read a Harry Potter from cover to cover.
0: That is true. I haven't. I I sometimes wonder if I ever met J.K. Rowling, how, how we would greet each other. She probably would be very disapproving and rather scornful of her Professor Sprout. I, on the other hand, admire her tremendously for her achievements. And as a writer, I think her detective stories as Robert Galbraith are marvellous. But I'm not interested in fantasy. I'm not interested in Harry Potter. I enjoyed being in it. I enjoyed the money I made from it. I'm grateful to the renown that it has given me. But it's Mm. not one of the most important things in my life.
1: I also saw a video, it was from a while ago, it was on YouTube, from your appearance on This Morning and your plea to join Call the Midwife and then you actually went on to star as Sister Mildred. Why did you want to be a part of that show? I wanted to be a part of Call the Midwife because it's a bloody brilliant show
0: with marvellous actresses, a tremendous script and a work ethic and a commitment that I admire. So I am thrilled that I'm a part of that. I absolutely love being in it, love all the people in it. It's brilliant, and I'm blessed this morning for letting me make a plea. Whether it had a, a result, I don't know. I, I I don't think they would ever admit that they cast me because I asked for
1: it, but I'm thrilled that I got it. It's a really lovely show, and I think... One of the reasons, I mean, it's one of the most watched shows on the BBC. And I think one of the reasons why it's got such a loyal fanship and why people enjoy it so much is because, yes, it's got a very tender and light um, approach, but it also uncovers some quite serious issues and brings to the forefront women's issues as well. No doubt about it. I think um,
0: Heidi takes enormous care in the script. And there is a real social awareness and commitment behind it. They care very much about the accuracy of what's depicted. And it uh, it covers a time that I think we are all, well, those of us of my age, certainly, not perhaps of yours, but we're nostalgic for the 40s and 50s and 60s. Things were not good then, but there was an innocence and a generosity and a compassion and a sense of one nation, which I don't think we have now. Something has fractured our United Kingdom and I'm sad to say so.
1: What do you think it is that's fractured it? Do you think it could be connected to kind of the internet and moving away from more kind of community-based living?
0: There are probably many factors. I'm perfectly convinced that it's uh, Tory rule and the imposition of Brexit on a European nation. It's an absurdity. And certainly the internet has uh, exacerbated separation. But we are not a
1: united kingdom anymore. I want to talk to you about your successful career also as a voice actor, which I didn't really know about until I listened to your autobiography. That's led you to some very interesting jobs. My favourite chapter of that book is when you tell the audience about you voicing sexy Sonia.
0: (laughs) I wonder why you like that so much.
1: (laughs) It happened. I loved it when you said you walked into Soho to see how it was selling and the man behind the counter kind of shushed you because he didn't want people to know that you were in in the room and you were sexy, Sonia.
0: I'm afraid that's true. Yes, it's always the voice that people want me for, not the body. And when I look at my body, I can fully appreciate why. But I think I was always uh, interested in voices. Voices tell you Mm. so much about people where they come from, who their parents were, what their education is, what their anxieties are very often. And um, you, you glean an awful lot about a person. So when I'm trying to find a character, I always try to find the voice first. That's my key into the role. And having a job in voiceovers was just a a marvellous lucrative sideline of acting which meant that I could spend time focusing in detail on how to present how to sell a product and it was fascinating I absolutely loved it
1: you're endlessly working you've shot travel programs recently documentaries and you are everyone's favorite panel guest will you ever slow down take a step back I don't know about being everyone's
0: favourite, probably a lot of people's unfavorite. No, I, I don't want to slow down. I want to do what I can while I'm able to do it because as you will discover when you get to be the age that I am, it's not comfortable. You can't run and jump as you used to do. You can't open bottles with the same dexterity. Every step is a little labored that's because i've got a spinal condition it doesn't necessarily come with age but age is a time when you traditionally do less you slow down you realize that the end of the tunnel is the end of the tunnel and it's not particularly comfortable so i will not slow down i will Go, if necessary, faster, faster and faster until I collapse, exhausted
1: and ultimately dead. Well, that leads us nicely to our quick fire questions. Um, So I'm going to ask you questions and the first answer that comes to your mind is your answer. Favourite TV show at the moment? Morecambe and Wise. The actor who most inspires you? Eileen Atkins If you could play any role, what would it be?
0: Mary Tyrone in Long Day's Journey Into Night
1: Festive snack of choice whilst watching telly Chopped liver (laughs) (laughs) Present
0: you'd most like to receive A first edition of any Dickens
1: novel Mistletoe or Christmas tree?
0: Ugh, (laughs) neither
1: Favourite Dickensian Christmas tradition?
0: Reading a Christmas Carol. Favourite
1: Dickens novel? Little Dorrit. Favourite Christmas film? Scrooge. Thank you so much for coming on view from my sofa. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've taught
0: me about myself. What a joy.
1: Thanks for listening to View From My Sofa. If you want to hear more from Radio Times, don't miss our Smart TV podcast in which we tell you what shows to watch this week and one to avoid. And if you want to read more interviews with the stars of the small screen, don't forget to pick up your copy of Radio Times out every Tuesday. That's all. Thanks for listening.